The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. These figures who you think are from the remote past do have afterlives and are used in popular memory for different purposes. That was Sunil Hilnani discussing some of India's most interesting characters. The official report has this extraordinary line, I mean, just uh, such understatement. Major Cooper Key in his report says their gallantry is much to be commended. They're standing essentially on top of a bomb made of hundreds of pounds of TNT. And that was Brian Dillon talking about a terrible First World War era accident. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our third podcast of May 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Professor Sunil Hilnani, who is director of the King's India Institute at King's College London. Sunil is the writer and presenter of a major new BBC Radio 4 series called Incarnations, which aims to tell the story of India through the lives of 50 of its most important historical figures. I visited him at King's College recently to find out more. There's something I, that I read in the publicity material that's been done ahead of this series where you, you said that there aren't that many Indians that are particularly well-known in the West. Probably the average person could name Gandhi, a couple of others. Why do you think it is? Because it's got such a rich history that we just don't know about many, many different Indians. Yeah, well, I think it's partly that, uh, you know, India has very often been seen in terms of these big collective groupings. So we think of India as having religions, we think of India as having castes, we think of India as having different languages, different uh, regional groupings. But we rarely think of the many individuals that make up these different groupings and that make up Indian history. And partly, I think also, you know, it's, it's been the way in which Indian history has been told. Um, initially, it was told as the story of the rise and fall of dynasties. So we knew about the Mauryan dynasty or the Gupta dynasty or the Mughal uh, Empire. Um, but very rarely were they individuated as remarkable figures. And then after that, I think, you know, subsequently in history, we had the kind of rise of social history and history that from below, which was all about, again, groups, classes, uh, you know, subaltern groups, etc. So what tended to get left out was the individual. And the other thing I would say is that, you know, in India, there's been a pretty weak tradition of biography. Um, biography is very popular when it comes to British history or, or uh, even American history. But somehow in relation to India, you got 
often celebratory kind of hagiographies. But biography as a way of thinking about history never really developed in India. When we're talking, both here and also in the series, when we're talking about India and Indians, what does that encompass? Does that encompass what was now also, say, Pakistan and Bangladesh? At what point did, does India become India? Well, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, it, once one starts to think about it, uh, it becomes harder and harder to answer. At what point does India become India? Um, the, the, I, I take a sort of fairly simple view about this. Um, uh, India, until, uh, the, the term India until 1947, I used to refer to the Indian subcontinent, essentially really from the northwestern borders with Afghanistan down to the eastern border with Burma, uh, is the kind of space uh, of, of India. So pre-partition India. And then for post-1947, I take India the nation state. Um, so India the, without Pakistan or Bangladesh and so on. Now, you know, I'm not taking... A, a, a strict definition of even the nation-state India. So, for instance, um, in the second series of the program, um, I take the figure of, of Jinnah, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who was the first um, leader of Pakistan and who led the creation of Pakistan. But from my point of view, you know, except for the... Jinnah dies in 1948. And from my point of view, except for that last year of his life, he's part of the history of India. So uh, that, that's really the way I'm, I'm interpreting it. But partly also through the programs and through the essays, I want to raise the question that you've raised, which is when does India really become a civilization that's conscious of itself, a culture that's con conscious of itself? And partly what I'm showing, I think, through some of these individual lives is that there's a contest about what India is. Uh, and who gets to define India. So I don't want to prejudge the question. I take a sort of operational view of it, and I hope the answer will gain some clarity through the programs. Yes, and you've chosen 50 people, 50 people in this series. Out of all of Indian history, I mean, how did you go about that process of deciding them? It must have been very difficult. Incredibly difficult. Um, you know, once you start to think about this, you start to draw up lists. And my initial list was 100. But, you know, at the end of the day, I chose 50 who were fairly, some of them fairly known, if you like, in India, some of them completely unknown, many of them unknown in the West, certainly, but all of them who interested me. Um, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, this is my take on uh, how to think about Indian history. This is my take on these individuals. And so they had to be figures that interested me. So I, I chose them uh, also sometimes knowing that there would, there would be some controversy over them, but I didn't choose them perversely to try and make obscure figures, you know, part of this group. Um, I chose them because I think they were known. And I also chose them because I think they have interesting contemporary resonances. So I'm interested in their lives, but I'm also interested in their afterlives. And each of these figures, almost all of them, are figures that still live in some way in India. Their memories still live in India. And just to end this point, um, everyone will have their own list of 50. 
And, you know, even when I'm talking to people now, they'll tell me, oh, why haven't you included so-and-so? Or, you know, what about this person? And, you know, my favorite is, and that's great um, because, you know, I want there to be an argument about this 50. This isn't a settled uh, group of, 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 of people who I think are the Indian greats. This is a kind of my attempt to provoke an argument, to stimulate a debate. And the first person in the series is Buddha, who you begin with. Do you think he's the first character we can really speak historically about within Indian history? Yes, again, that's very interesting. Um, I wanted um, all of my figures to be real historical figures. And it is, I think, the case that the Buddha is the first individual in Indian history of whom we have actual evidence. We know he lived. We know where he was born, roughly. Uh, we know where he first taught. We know where he died. Um, so, yes, for me, um, he is really the first historical figure um, who is a real human being, who has the complexity of a human being, uh, and who steps out of the depths of human history and speaks to us. And something that I think William Dalrymple said in one of the programmes I found really interesting was he said that the Indian, what you'd I guess call the classical period of Indian history, is actually much richer than he thought than either the Roman or Greek civilization. Is, is that true? And in that case, how, why don't we know more about this? Well, I think that's, uh, you know, you'll always get arguments about which classical civilization is richer and greater and so on. So, and, and you know, I, I don't want to get into claiming one as greater than the other. But what is certainly true is that there's an extraordinary wealth of writing and thinking in, in ancient India or early India. Uh, in Sanskrit, but also in some of the other languages. Um, and what's also true is that they are very little known. They're very little known even in India to some extent. I mean, what's known are the epics, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, the Vedas, the Upanishads, uh, the religious scriptures. But beyond that, and there are texts of science and mathematics, there are texts of medicine, there are texts of philosophy, uh, there's a whole range of intellectual writings that, you know, today we still know very, very little about. And, for example, if you take the text about science and mathematics, and one of my programs is about a 5th century Indian mathematician uh, called Aryabhata, 6th century. Um, and if you take the manuscripts in Sanskrit about science and mathematics, there's a vast body of them, only 10% of which have been published. So 90% of the manuscripts haven't really even been studied or looked at. So there is a huge wealth here. Whether or not it compares with how we assess it in relation to Roman Greece, that's another question. But certainly there's a lot more to be discovered. And then prior to the 15th, 16th century, when you have quite large-scale contact with Europe, was, was India at this point, classical was it in communication with the, the Western and the Middle Eastern civilizations? How much cultural transfer, was that? <laughs> well, yes, I, I think that this is one of the things that, uh, this is one of the um, commonplaces about Indian history, that somehow it was hermetically sealed until it encountered the West in, in the 15th and 16th centuries, that I want to um, explode a bit in this series. Because the fact is that India, right back from the time of the Buddha, is in contact with a variety of different cultures. Um, the Buddha came from Bihar, today's Bihar, uh, and northern India at that point had many connections with Persia, with the Middle East area, as we call it today, and in the centuries after the Buddha with the Greek world, and so on. Trade was happening with the Roman world, 
world, uh, even um, in the south of India. And I show this in the program on Raja Raja Chola, who was uh, 11th century uh, ruler of southern India. Uh, there were many connections with Southeast Asia. There were connections with Africa. Um, so India was really, for very long, from its earliest history, actually a crossroads, not a sealed bubble um, waiting for kind of Europe to discover it. And, you know, one of the things I want to show is how, and, you know, take the Buddha himself. I mean, the Buddha's teachings uh, within a couple of centuries of his death have spread to down to Ceylon, to, to as it was then called, Sri Lanka, to Southeast Asia, up to far, the Far East, and into China. So, so India was both in contact and absorbing things from the rest of the world, and it was from a very early time sending its ideas and um, cultural uh, products, uh, and indeed material products, out into the rest of the world as well. Clearly a massive part of Indian history is when the British arrive and all that leads to and my understanding of it is that when Britain first arrived at India actually the British were culturally, economically, militarily far behind the Indian culture would that be true to say? Well um, I think it's mixed I mean I think you know certainly um, when the British uh, start to develop a presence in India which is really, I would say, in the 18th century when the East India Company, of course, comes in slightly earlier, but it really gets going in the 18th century. And it is true that uh, in the 18th century, India's share of trade is, much, is a very significant part of world trade. It is also true that the reason the British come to India is not because India is poor and undeveloped. They come to India because India has very sophisticated products, textiles, um, uh, natural resources, but, but made manufactured products. Um, and particularly, I think, uh, textiles is what, what attracts um, the British, but also jewelry and, and, and fine products and art and so on. So the British are interested in what India has to make and, and to sell. You know, they also find a world that has some quite sophisticated military technologies, some quite sophisticated forms of architecture, a whole variety of things. So, so yes, I think, and, and what you see in the early encounters between the British and India, and this is manifest in the story of William Jones, who's one of the subjects, one of the individuals in my series, what you see is really an encounter between two civilizations that were equal. Jones feels that in coming to India, he's discovered a great civilization. Uh, he's discovered Indian writers who are the equivalent of Shakespeare. He's discovered Indian epics that are like Homer. So you get this sense of a meeting of equals. That then quickly tips over. Within 50 years, um, the British no longer think Indians are equals. They think Indians are, are subordinate and of a lesser type. But in that initial moment, I think there was a sense that uh, in, in India had at least as much to offer uh, as, as the British had to offer it. And this is a huge question, it doesn't just apply to India, but why do you think that India fell behind comparatively to the West in this period? And in terms of economic development, in terms of power on the world stage, why did the West grow so rich when India and India didn't, because it had all this great culture and knowledge. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a very, very difficult question. And I don't really know how to do a kind of short answer to it. Um, I teach a whole course which uh, <laughs> tries to address it. But I think a number of things did happen uh, in the second half of the 18th century. 
which knocked India off a particular direction it was moving in. And I think that had to do uh, partly with military confrontation with the West and defeat by the West. So, you know, in the 18th century, both the French and the British were in India uh, struggling for control. Uh, the British managed to establish military power and defeated um, some very important Indian uh, kingdoms and, and princely states, uh, and that continued into the early 19th century. And really what you had also was the British operating not like a state, but like a, a rogue company in a sense, which was the East India Company, which had very little controls on it and which was able to strike deals, to do underhand deals and so on, and essentially grab large chunks of India and dispossess uh, India. And so I think that period from about the 1780s to the 1830s or 40s is the critical period when India, in a sense, gets knocked off a certain course that it's going in and then becomes this subordinate culture to the British. Now, of course, Indians themselves bear a lot of responsibility for that too. They didn't uh, develop strategic responses to the British. They didn't come together. They allowed themselves to be um, outflanked and, and outmaneuvered. Um, so I think Indians have a lot to blame for it themselves. So that's the, that's the kernel of an answer. But it's a complex answer. And I think actually, we still don't have a fully satisfying answer to it as historians. And I suppose another huge debate around, around this, and this, this does attract extremely strong opinions on, I guess, either side. Do you think that overall the British presence in India was good in the long term for India, or was it, was it more broadly negative than positive? I think these kind of long uh, encounters between cultures are always mixed in their outcomes. Um, there's no question that the encounter, the, the colonization of India by, by Britain did many negative things for India. It certainly affected the economic uh, opportunities of many Indians. It certainly introduced a kind of racism into Indian life. It certainly divided uh, Indians against one another. Um, and, you know, it produced 150 years of subjugation. On the other hand, the encounter with Britain also opened up India to ideas. Um, several of the people in my program from the 19th century, for instance, Jyoti Rao Phule, in the 20th century, B.R. Ambedkar, Gandhi himself, these were Indians who were opened up to Western ideas, who learnt the English language, who came to adopt the universalism of Enlightenment principles and then used that against the British, saying, look, you profess these principles, you profess to be liberals, you profess to believe in the equality of man, in the rights of human beings, and so on, and yet you're not following these principles. So I think... Britain, the intellectual encounter was a very rich and complicated one for Indians. And it opened up a new way of thinking about how to imagine a society for Indians, what it was to be free, what it was to be an individual, what justice was. And so in that sense, I think the encounter was a very productive one. 
and it, it you know you see this in the Indian Constitution. You see this in the um, the the Indian embrace and adoption of democracy. Now, I'm not saying democracy was a gift from the British to India. It wasn't. The Indians had to fight for it from from Britain. But the principles of democracy, I think, became more powerful because Indians were exposed to enlightenment and liberal and other ideas. And how did you go about incorporating the British Raj speakers into the series? Because that must have been quite a complicated scenario, whether they count as Indians or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I took a few, um, William Jones, um, Annie Besant. Curzon was there, although I think I'm not sure he'll be there in the final cut, although Curzon was an important figure. And these were really figures who I think played an important role in Indian history. So um, I, I took figures who could help me tell us more about India, which sometimes meant telling us about the encounter with the West. But um, it was figures who, who matter to Indians. And, and, you know, Jones is one such because he, in a sense, rediscovered the Sanskrit uh, past of India and presented it anew. Annie Besant, this fiery Irish uh, socialist who comes to India and becomes an Indian nationalist and, and, and the first woman president of the Indian National Congress, uh, uh, close to Gandhi, to, to many other figures. So I, I, I chose figures who, who play a role in Indian history. And I really wanted to get away from the kind of Raj approach or frame to Indian history. I mean, I think, you know, the Raj was an important part of Indian history, but we've had quite a lot about it. Mm-hmm. And, and so this wants, wanted to tell the story from the Indian point of view. To pick out some of the great Indian figures of this time who maybe get neglected in all the histories. That, that's right. So, so, you know, some of the figures uh, from who, who I take from the 20th century will be known. You know, Mahatma Gandhi, B.R. Ambedkar, Nehru, Jinnah, but others are not. Um, for example, the figure of uh, Ramaswamy Naikar, Periyar, who was a fiery South Indian radical who attacked the caste system and wanted to abolish the caste system. Or a, another man from the South, from Kerala, uh, called Chidambaram Pillai, who was the founder of uh, an Indian shipping company uh, because he wanted to compete with the British uh, and set up his own uh, shipping company. Photographer Deendayal, who was uh, developing photography as an art in India at the same time that it was being developed in Europe. It's not that photography came later to India, but you know this is in the 1870s and so on. So I wanted to show you and show the listeners that there's this wealth of individuals doing things that are interesting to all of us, not just to Indians. Coming on to the modern day, the present into which you visited, travelled around for the series, because India's changing so fast, how much do you think these historical figures still shape the fabric of the country? Quite a lot, actually. I think that's what I, I sort of thought that would be the case. And then I think in the, the extensive travel, as you say, that I've done uh, to make the series, I found it was even more true than I expected. So figures like the Buddha, for instance, 2,500 years ago, he's today an inspiration to India's former untouchables, the, uh, as they were called, now called Dalits. Now, the Buddha was someone who, for them, for India's Dalits, the most underprivileged in India, the, the Buddha was someone who wanted to do away with the caste system, who wanted to promote as they see it, a more egalitarian society. And what interests me is not necessarily whether that's an entirely true interpretation, but that's what people find in the Buddha. Or, you know, take someone like Ashoka, 
the Emperor Ashoka uh, from you know the, the, the third century before the Common Era. And Ashoka, again, is today everywhere in India. He is part of the Indian state. Every time you use an Indian currency note, there's the emblem of Ashoka. He's there in, in your hands. So take the 6th century mathematician Aryabhata. India's first space launch and satellite was named after him. He's a way of, you know, Indians feeling pride about their scientific and mathematical tradition. Or take the philosopher Shankara from the, the 8th century, Shankaracharya, again, who is very important in religious debates today. So these figures who you think are from the remote past do have afterlives and are used in popular memory for different purposes. As a historian, one might get a bit uneasy because you think that's not the historically accurate use. But, you know, who's that for us to say? If people want to make use of a figure from the historical past... Well, they will do, whatever the historian might think. Do Indians themselves, how do they feel about history? Are they passionate people in Europe or about the past? Um, again, that's interesting. I mean, I think it's often been said that, you know, Indians don't care about their history. The British famously said about India that, you know, the Indians don't really care about history and their past and so on. And I think what you see is actually there's a pretty intense engagement that Indians have with their past. It doesn't mean that they're always looking for um, the exact factual record. It doesn't mean that they're always doing their best to preserve documents or, or buildings or architectural uh, or archaeological sites. Uh, all of which, of course, they should be doing. But it does mean that they are engaged with the past in a way that it's an argument still for them. So um, a figure like the Buddha is, is a contested figure today. A figure like Dara Shiko, the, the Mughal prince who, who was defeated and executed by Aurangzeb, his brother. People still ask the question, you know, what if Dara Shiko had actually become the emperor and not Aurangzeb? Uh, a figure like Ram Mohan Roy from early 19th century Bengal, who was involved in the abolition of sati, or, or you know, widow immolation or burning. Uh, so the, these are figures who Indians are still engaged with, they still think about. So in that sense, I think Indians do have a sense of history and a sense of the past that is very strong. They, they, they look to these figures for inspiration. They look to these figures uh, sometimes as uh, with enmity, um, but they are engaged with them. If there was one of the people in the series who you could meet, who would you choose? Wow. Um, you know who I would be very interested to meet uh, is the painter Nansuk, uh, who lived in the 18th century, and he painted in a tradition that uh, is part of the miniature painting tradition. And we have only come to know of him recently through the work of art historians, but we still know very little about him. And he's a painter who painted uh, with wonderful precision, but also with wonderful boldness. He used blank paper. Uh, he, there's a great confidence in the way he paints. Uh, and yet, you know, there's nothing written that he's left, well, just a few lines. Uh, and we know nothing really about what he was. And I'm, I'd, I'm intrigued to, I would love to just watch him work and, and to learn a bit more about what he believed himself to be doing in these extraordinary paintings that he painted. That was Sunil Hilnani. 
Incarnations is currently being broadcast on BBC Radio 4, and you can find out more details and listen to previous episodes on the BBC iPlayer. Sunil is also going to be one of the speakers at this year's History Weekend in Malmesbury, for which tickets are now on sale. You can find out more details about this and our companion event in York at historyweekend.com. There you can also buy tickets and BBC History magazine subscribers will get a discount on those. A version of this interview appeared in the May issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone off sale, but still available as a back issue in print and for several digital devices. And meanwhile, our June issue has just gone on sale. Inside this month's magazine, you'll find articles on Anne Boleyn, Waterloo, King John and the Battle of the Bulge, among other things. You can get hold of our June issue now in all good news agents and digitally. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's now time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. The barons and bishops who forced King John to sign Magna Carta in 1215 are to face, quote, charges of treason. 800 years after the historic document was written, senior lawyers, including the president of the UK Supreme Court, will sit in judgment on the barons and bishops to decide whether they acted lawfully or were in fact guilty of treasonable behaviour. King John sealed Magna Carta in 1215 after his barons rebelled and forced him to agree to limitations on his power because he had demanded heavy taxes to fund his unsuccessful wars in France. According to the Telegraph, advocates from across the Commonwealth will make the cases for the prosecution and the defence when the mock trial is staged on the 31st of July at Westminster Hall. The trial is being staged by the Magna Carta 800th anniversary. In other news... A 400-year-old botany book contains what could be the only known portrait of William Shakespeare made in his lifetime. According to botanist and historian Mark Griffiths, the engraving by William Rogers appears in the biography of pioneering botanist John Garrard. The engraving shows the playwright aged 33 and, quote, in his prime. Four figures depicted in the engraving were until now assumed to have been imaginary. However, Griffiths revealed he had decoded decorative devices around the figures to reveal their, quote, true identities, BBC News reports. The fourth man holds a fritillary and an ear of sweetcorn, plants that Griffiths says point to Shakespeare's poem Venus and Adonis and his play Titus Andronicus. Meanwhile, the mummy of a five-year-old ancient Egyptian girl that was found by refuse collectors after a local resident threw it out with the rubbish is to go on show at a museum in Paris. According to Radio France Internationale, dustbin men found the mummy dumped in a suburb just outside Paris in 2001, 
by a woman who said she was clearing her cellar. The mummy was taken by police to a local museum, who found it contained a small coffin containing the body of a child. Experts from the Louvre Museum confirmed it was an authentic ancient Egyptian mummy of a girl called Ta'iset, who died more than 2,000 years ago, sometime between 365 and 170 BC. It is still unclear how the mummy ended up in France. Thanks for that, Emma. Now, back in April 1916, not long before the Battle of the Somme began, a fire started in a large munitions work in Kent. That fire led to a terrible explosion, which killed over a 100 people and left a giant crater in the landscape. Largely obscured by the carnage of the First World War, this tragic event is now the subject of a new book by the author Brian Dillon, which is entitled simply The Great Explosion. I met up with Brian a few weeks ago in the offices of his publisher Penguin, and this is what he had to say. How did you first discover the story of this explosion? I've been living in Kent uh, for 20 years this year. I moved from Dublin when I was a student. And I live in Canterbury, um, but I have friends who live out near the marshes uh, at uh, Orr along the Swale. And about 15 years ago, uh, we got into the habit of going for walks uh, on Sunday afternoons. And one afternoon, my friends walked myself and my, my now partner into the uh, woods and led us very slowly, without telling us anything, towards an enormous hole. It was just a sheer drop surrounded by concrete, walled with concrete and a very flimsy fence. And they told us it was the remains of uh, an explosives factory that had been there since they thought the 19th century. It turns out to have been much older. And that during the Second World War there had been a disaster. If not there, then somewhere around. So it was at that stage a really mysterious place. It's now, there's a heritage centre at part of the, uh, the remains of the factory. But then it was a very strange uh, and somewhat kind of sinister place. And so that kind of planted a seed, I think, uh, 15 years ago in my mind, that there was a story here to be told. So that was 15 years ago. So what then finally made you decide, I want to tell the story now? I have, I suppose, a kind of long-standing interest in ruins uh, and ruinous landscapes. And Kent is a place that seems to me really filled with, it's partly because of its geographical position historically, obviously, that it's a place of movement in and out, a part of the country that historically needed to be defended. I grew kind of fascinated over the past 10 to 15 years with those kinds of remains in the landscape. Uh, places like Dungeness with its um, sound mirrors, precursors of radar, more obvious things like the fortifications and places like Dover and so on. So I was kind of interested in, in ruinous Kent and somehow I slowly worked my way back to this landscape that I knew very well, where there isn't really an awful lot to see. You know, there, there are foundations and the odd, uh, the odd bit of evidence um, of this vast, vast factory um, that, that spread along the coast by the First World War. But there's not an awful lot there, so it seemed like a really modest starting point for a story about destruction, about ruins, about the war, about England, in a way. And was geography also a reason why the gunpowder works came to be there in the first place? It was. So the town of Faversham, which is where these marshes uh, are kind of outlying uh, just to the west, 
had been a centre for gunpowder manufacture uh, since at least the early 18th century. The, the real kind of precise origins are, are a little bit obscure, but certainly there have been factories there since that stage, initially actually right in the centre of town, uh, and in fact you can still see some of the remains of those just by a housing estate, uh, you know, five minutes walk from, from the town centre. And Faversham is situated uh, on a tidal creek um, within really easy access uh, to London, to the ports around the southeast coast of Britain, um, and then obviously to the continent. So in terms of importing raw materials and uh, exporting finished product, it was the ideal position. How much did sort of more work went on there in the First World War? Production, I guess, must have stepped up enormously once that happened. Production stepped up certainly at the start of the war, but more particularly after 1915, after the, what became known as the, the Shell Crisis, uh, when there's really a kind of uh, you know, public scandal and debate about what seems to be a shortage uh, of ammunition, shortage uh, of munitions in general uh, for the British Army. So production has stepped up across the country, and particularly um, at uh, Faversham. There were, by the First World War, there were two factories the Cotton Powder Company had been there since the 19th century, middle of the 19th century. But the Explosives Loading Company uh, is the factory where this disaster eventually happened in the middle of the war. And that opened um, just before the start of the war. And so that was the one that really, really expanded um, after 1915. So by halfway through the war, spring to summer of 1916, uh, that's working absolutely flat out. Were there any similar explosion to this prior to, to the one in Kent? Was this the first of its kind or had there been others in the war? There had been others in the war and there, there were uh, to some degree sort of more dramatic ones. In, in fact, slightly later um, at Silvertown in the mm. east end of London in 1917 there was in a way a more spectacular explosion because it destroyed you know, vast swathes of, of the surrounding uh, streets. It didn't kill as many people, however. Um, so that's, uh, there's a memorial for that one. There's no memorial for the, the Faversham one out at the actual site. There, there's a mass grave in, uh, in the town. But, so it's one of several explosions, and there had been other uh, appalling disasters in Kent, actually, um, not at factories, uh, but with munitions and troop ships uh, exploding. So there had been other uh, explosions at um, the Medway River, where uh, troop ships and munitions munitions ships were birthed, um, and those killed you know, hundreds of people, uh, over 300 people in, in one instance. So the explosion I was interested in, the accident I was interested in, is, is one of a series, really, of, of uh, more or less well-known uh, disasters during the war. And actually, one thing I noticed from reading the book is that people referred to one of the earlier incidents when talking about this explosion, and they talked about it was a Princess Irene, they... He said, oh, yeah, it reminds me of the Irene, so that people got almost accustomed to this kind of thing. They did, and some of that, you know, has to do with the landscape in a way, because this part of the country is so flat um, that any kind of disaster uh, is immediately sort of visible. It was one of the really striking things researching the book, was I would go walking these marshes, and you have a real sense there that anything happens, it's immediately visible. And of course, you know, word gets around, despite the fact that you know, the government uh, may want to uh, keep things uh, a little bit under wraps. It's impossible, of course. Um, but those stories circulate among factory workers. You know, anybody who goes to work uh, in the middle of the war at a munitions factory knows pretty quickly, um, even if it's just rumours um, and, and press reports from other parts of the country. 
And so, can you just briefly explain what actually happened in the incident in question? So how did it how did it start, and what was the outcome? The um, the factory, the explosives loading company, as I say, was was working flat out by the spring of 1916, and it seems that on the 2nd of April, uh, which was a Sunday, very early in the morning, there had been a very small fire uh, while it was still dark. The factory was, you know, there was nobody there at that stage other than guards who were patrolling regularly, and one of them discovered a small fire, and it was put out in the small hours of the morning. But sometime later, probably mid-morning, uh, it was a Sunday, the factory was uh, open on a Sunday, only the men were working on Sundays, all the women workers had the day off, so in fact no women were injured or killed uh, uh, on the day. And at some point in the morning, it seems a spark escaped from a boiler house chimney and set light uh, to a pile of canvas bags that had contained TNT. And this fire started uh, very slowly. At some point towards noon, one of the workers walked past this point. He saw that there was a small smouldering fire. He didn't put it out because he clearly thought it wasn't immediately very dangerous. But he did tell his colleagues, and people went straight away to put this fire out. But it must have taken hold in the meantime. Uh, it must have accelerated in the meantime. So this building, it's building 833, there isn't the slightest hint of this building left now, unlike some of the others, um, started to burn. And by one o'clock or so, it was very much alight. Um, there had been, uh, the fire brigade had been called uh, from elsewhere in the factory. Uh, fire engines had arrived from Faversham, from the town. Many workers had rushed to the scene um, with buckets. You know, there were lines, chains of buckets from the drainage dikes uh, on the marshes uh, around this building. But all to no avail. Um, and uh, around lunchtime, many of these people were rushing from their midday meal uh, to try and help. Around lunchtime, uh, this building went up. And it's just because there was, I guess, so much explosive material in the area, that's why it caused such a massive explosion. The building, building number 833 was, was filled with TNT and Amatol, uh, which is the other explosive being uh, uh, produced, um, packaged up at, the, at the, the factory. So that combination, it seems, was particularly dangerous. Although TNT itself, uh, you can see, you can read in the official report and in the kind of eyewitness accounts, the workers who knew what they were doing weren't particularly worried about the TNT exploding. Uh, it would, it seems, it would catch fire, but it would burn itself out. That's what they were expecting. Mm. They weren't expecting this building to actually go up all at once, which it did. And from reading the accounts in your book, they assume some of the men there seem to show incredible level of bravery. I mean, I don't think I'd have been rushing to a scene of lots of explosions and fire. Mm. A lot of them lost their lives probably because they were so bravely trying to control the situation. There's a tradition, you know, because in researching the book, obviously I read a lot about the history of uh, factories going back through the 19th and 18th centuries. Everybody knew at a gunpowder factory in the 19th century that as soon as there was the slightest hint of danger, you ran away. But here you had a different situation. You had a situation where the factory was very, very densely you know, packed. Many people weren't expecting that it would immediately explode, so they ran to, to, to help. Some of the workers, including some of the managers, say later on in, in their uh, statements to the, uh, the uh, official inquiry, they said, well, one of the things on their minds was that if this thing went up, it would mean a vast, uh, it would cause vast damage to the war effort. 
And so a sense of duty was partly um, on their minds. But yes, many people ran, many of the workers ran towards the scene. There's an extraordinary account in the official report by uh, His Majesty's uh, Inspector of Explosives, Major Cooper Key, uh, who arrived in the days following. He describes two of the managers, uh, a manager from each of the companies that was based uh, on the marshes, standing, climbing, clambering up onto uh, another nearby burning building, which they knew was also filled with TNT, standing on top of this building while their colleagues passed them buckets of water, trying to dampen it down so that this one wouldn't go up too. And the official report has this extraordinary line, I mean, just uh, such understatement. Major Cooper Key in his report says, their gallantry is much to be commended. They're standing essentially on top of a bomb made of hundreds of pounds of TNT. It's incredible. I mean, do you think that that bravery, that in the way that the workers had to try and suppress it, is the reason that there was such a high loss of life compared to some of the other incidents? It's difficult to say. You know, there was a real controversy at the time about whether some of the workers had merely been standing by and watching. And that's, that's a very fraught thing in the, in the aftermath to this disaster, uh, that it's suggested by some people at the Home Office uh, it seems not to have been true. It seems that actually the, the hundred or so men who died, uh, in the end it was 108, was the final figure, um, that they were all there to help. They were all trying to find a way of getting as much water because the fire engines had been delayed. It was difficult to get water from the, the nearby dikes, to get sufficient water on, on, onto the burning building. It seems that they were all trying to help. There's something else like I got sent from the description of this event is that there was a kind of randomness to, to whether you were killed or injured. It wasn't necessarily all the people near us were the ones killed. You'd have people next to each other. One would be hurt and one wouldn't be. It's a really striking thing in, in, in the report that there was a kind of immediate radius in which almost everybody died. But even within that, there's the occasional man discovered alive. You know, people stood up with to find that all their clothes had been blown off, which is typically, you know, what happens in this, this kind of explosion, uh, and that they were pretty much unhurt, but that their friends and colleagues beside them had been blown to pieces. And it's uh, for the investigators in a, a disaster like this in the middle of the First World War, it's a grisly but kind of really important process of discovery about the way that a blast wave behaves so that it seems kind of capricious. Uh, it seems to choose its victims randomly. But actually what's happening often is that there are distinctions, there are differences in how that blast wave is travelling. If it's travelling across uh, marsh or across you know, paved areas and, or rock, or if there's bedrock underneath. Um, and even things like you know, the, the sound of the explosion travelled in odd ways too. It was heard, it was heard on the coast of France, it, broke windows on the outskirts of London and smashed plate glass windows and shop fronts in Essex and so on. But there's a similar kind of uh, odd behaviour that happens with the blast wave itself. Is that partly to do with the very flat surroundings? Did that make the situation worse because it was good to go in all directions? In the immediate vicinity, I think that's what was happening, yeah. The official inquiry seemed to suggest that there was no one really to blame for it, other than kind of the excessive pressure put on by the First World War, there wasn't really any sort of human error. Do you think that's true from your reading of the situation? I think that Major Cooper Key, the inspector, uh, was, he was being 
judicious, I think. He had, in fact, uh, inspected the factory just the day before the explosion. And in his report, because he hadn't, I suppose, had a chance to write up that initial visit before the disaster, he says that the factory was in uh, a congested state and he recommended that certain precautions be taken. But he understood that in the middle of the war, production being scaled up, the place being so busy that it was really impossible to meet all of the stipulations, all of the regulations um, that the Ministry of Munitions might have had in place. So, in answer to the question, was there human error? Clearly there was human error, but it's what, one of the things that's fascinating in the official response is that there's, a, there's an allowance for that human error. You know, in the end, nobody is blamed as such. And then what... What kind of impact did this have on the local community? I, mean, I, I guess in any normal time, this would be this would be like a huge international event. But during the First World War, because there was so much death and destruction happening anyway, did it still have that kind of shock to the people around? I think it had an extraordinary shock. You know, one of the uh, sources for some of the images that I have uh, in the book is a series of postcards that were made, about twenty-five of them, um, uh, recording the funerals of. Uh, victims who were buried, as I said, in a mass grave in Faversham. And you have a sense in those pictures, you know, of uh, the funeral parading down the, the high street and the whole town turning out. You have a real sense of, of what the shock must have been to, to a town, to a community. Many of the workers would have come from other parts of the country by that stage, of course. So it was an event that had ramifications uh, all over the country. But as you say things had to carry on, and the factory was very, very quickly back uh, in action. Some of the buildings were rebuilt just in the immediate vicinity, um, and it lives on as it lives on in local memory. There are descendants of the people who worked there at the time, and some of those who, who died still living uh, in Faversham and surrounding villages. But it hovers, not exactly forgotten, but mostly people who pay attention to it later on or local historians in a wider context, in a way there were much greater disasters you know, the, disa- the great disaster that's about to come in the spring of uh, 1916 of course is you know, the, the Somme, the Battle of the Somme uh, in, the, in the summer and these kinds of uh, in a way they are disasters of war but they're also kind of civic disasters uh, on the home front, they do fade into the background and do you see many parallels between what happened here and a similar explosion events taking place on the Western Front? One of the things that's really striking in the, in the both in the official report and in the accounts that people, uh, that eyewitnesses um, and survivors make of this disaster, is that it looks even to those who have never fought, uh, who have never seen action themselves, it looks to them like the Western Front. It, you know, the, there's a really grisly description in the um, official report of the wave of mud uh, that the explosion throws up onto the marsh, and the fact that in order to find the dead and the dying, the workers have to throw wooden boards, you know, fragments of the surrounding buildings, onto this seething, stinking mud, and go scrabbling about looking for their their friends and and colleagues. 
And it already looks to many of those people later on uh, telling that story, it already looks like the accounts of the Western Front that they've heard. So just, you know, just in terms of the, uh, the physical effects, um, it's, it's the closest, in a way, an event like that uh, on the home front that you could experience to the horrors that were being reported, the stories that were being sent back. And do you think that if it had happened, say, ten years later, that there'd be a lot more about it, that it'd be a, a more memorialised, perhaps, but because it took place and so many people from that area would have been fighting and dying in France, it just ended up getting overshadowed in all the commemorations? I guess, yes. I mean, it's, um, it's commemorated locally, and a year later, uh, a year after the disaster, the, uh, the grave, the mass grave uh, in Faversham Cemetery, there's a, there's a cross, huge memorial cross erected uh, above that. There have been, later on, you know, the certain anniversaries of the disaster commemorated uh, locally. But I suppose that's one of the things that drew me to this story was actually, in a way, I've chosen one because I happen to know this place, I know the landscape and I know the, uh, the history. But Britain is dotted, constellated, you know, with, with lots of these semi-forgotten disasters. I suppose you're right, if, if this happened in peacetime, it would be considerably more traumatic. And were any lessons learned, you know, from this incident? Afterwards, did um, other explosive factories try and take measures to prevent some of this happening again? I think that the, you know, there, had, there had always been a, a tradition, a necessity uh, of um, explosives companies communicating with each other. Um, so I think the, the very precise lessons, for example, uh, about keeping these two particular explosives in, in the same building, TNT and Amatol, um, that's one of the, the recommendations of the, the eventual report that Major Cooper Key uh, produces. And uh, he, he also says that it's um, the kind of speed with which the place is filling up with um, empty storage bags, boxes, crates, and so on, um, that that needs to be attended to. But I think there's a real sense also that uh, this is an accident, you know, that um, there is only so much in a way that one can do in the middle of the war um, to ensure that this kind of thing doesn't happen. We're at the moment obviously going through the process of memorialising the First World War as the centenary goes on. Firstly, do you know of any plans to commemorate this incident? And if not, how do you think it should be? remembered 100 years on? Well, the, the disaster is well known locally and it seems that uh, next year there will be some events to commemorate it. Um, I think what I'd quite like to see, and I hope that um, this will emerge in the next year or so, is some kind of memorial at the site itself. The site itself, which I describe in the book, um, is, there is almost nothing mm-hmm. there. There's a kind of, you know, slight dent in the landscape. It's privately owned land. I mean, there, there, there's no reason why the owners should necessarily want to, you know, a great big memorial. But I think they're, they're themselves kind of fascinated by that story and touched by that story. And I think it would be uh, a small, you know, within, as you say, the kind of vast picture of how we've remembered and memorialised the First World War uh, at the moment. It would be a small, but I think... Um, I think it would be the right thing that there's some kind of uh, memory inserted into that landscape. That was Brian Dillon. The Great Explosion, 
Gunpowder, The Great War and a Disaster on the Kent Marshes is out now, published by Penguin. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be paying a visit to Britain's new National Civil War Centre. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. 